First Timothy chapter 5. We'll finish Timothy up next week. We have a little bit to go. Then we'll take two weeks off, the week, uh, Wednesday before Christmas, the Wednesday before the New Year. We're not meeting. If you want to show up and meet on your own, that's fine. Stand in the parking lot and do whatever you want. We're going to finish chapter 5, verse 24. And, and, and we talk a lot about, you know, those are false teachers. And, and it's not just about false teachers. Sometimes it's about being false Christians. Now, I know Paul probably should make the assumption that most people are believers, but in some sense, you can't always do that. Some people just are not truly followers of Jesus. And I've been in church life. Uh, well, when my mom was pregnant, I went to church, you know, with her. And uh, so I've been in church like a long, long time. And, uh, and, and the thing that is in ministry for uh, over a little 42 years, listen, I come across a lot of people. A lot of people who, you know, they give all, they talk, do all the talking, they go to church, they do all the things. You look at their life and you experience their life, or better yet, you experience them. You're like, man, there's no way they can be a follower of Christ. I don't think that about any of you in here. Okay, I don't. I'm going to double check because there's a few, but you're not here. But that, it's a struggle. And one of the struggles that you can see in, in the life of churches, in the life of communities of believers, even just among people who are maybe not at a church, but they're believers together, is the person that's always causing friction, always causing trouble, always difficult. And that's a struggle in life. And you know, it's, it's okay to have opinions, it's okay to disagree, it's okay to feel passionately about certain things, but you don't, you know, as, as a follower of Christ, I never want to be at odds with believers. Over my years of ministry, I've had many people leave the church because of me. When you're the pastor, it happens. They don't leave because of me. They leave because of them. Now, I don't, you know, I've never, I've only like three people have I ever really tried to run out of a church. And none here, and those three people, I was unsuccessful, but I sure wanted them to leave. Now, there's been a lot of people who have left that I've been happy about, don't get me wrong. But the reason you're happy is because they, they hurt the spirit of the church. You don't want to be the person that within your group of friends that are believers or within a church or a small group or a Sunday school class is the one always causing trouble and friction. You know, <laughs> I remember someone at a church one time, someone said, well, you know, pastor, it's just my job to kind of keep you honest. And I just, I just remember saying, you know, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. He doesn't need you to keep me anything. In fact, you probably ought to think about your own spiritual life and make some changes if that's your opinion. You know, our task is to honor God, help people come to Christ, and work within the church, brothers and sisters unified to serve. So when he deals with these false teachers, knew what he says. Verse 24, the sins of some people are quite evident going before them to judgment for others their sins follow after. Put this way, the sins of people lead to judgment. Some of the sins are evident, open to go before them. Some, you might say, follow after. But it is always their sins that condemn them, that make it so obvious. They go to, who's got a coffee coming? I didn't know we did that. Who's got coffee coming here? Raise your hand if you've got a coffee coming. You, I didn't know we did to go service. When did we start to go coffee ordering? Were they the mobile app? What is this? <laughs> mobile ordering coffee? Why, why, why in the world? 
Y'all must be special people. And everybody's looking at you like, and you're embarrassed right now, aren't you? The pastor just saw you. I hope you paid double for that. I know, tip. So a new service, evidently you have mobile ordering now. Just order on your phone off the app, and you get free coffee, or get your coffee. It's not free. Put it on be free. <laughs> That's just funny. I'm sorry. But, but you know, some people, their sins are obvious. Some are hidden. But the false teachers, for most of the part, their sins were so obvious. He says, likewise, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Listen, I know we're not saved by our works. I'm a strong Southern Baptist, and I believe that. But our works are the evidence of our salvation. When you look at the life of someone, and you see that they claim to be a follower of Christ, but there's a meanness and a hardness and a harshness, that there's nothing in their life that would give you any evidence, I never assume they're saved. If someone says they're a follower of Jesus, there's evidence in their life of that. And I know so many people in the life of the churches that I've served that are good, kind, loving people. They may have struggled sometimes. They get crossways. Well, I got it. But they love the Lord, and it, it comes out. I can never help but think in, in the churches that I served of some of the people. I had a guy in Bridgeport. He was cranky. He was mean. He was a deacon, too, which I, I don't know. And... Uh, he was really older, and he was mean. He and I had some words. He finally left. He was one of those, and I'm like, thank you, Lord, for letting him go. He went to another church to cause him problems. And he gets to be old, and someone says, why do you think, oh, brother, Jimmy's never died? I said, well, I'll look at it this way. It's probably because the Lord don't want him, and the devil don't either. You know, <laughs> just that mean. Some people, it's that way. Now, having said that, Paul kind of takes a little detour. You know, sometimes we preachers, you know, chase rabbits. I have a very structured sermon to keep me from chasing rabbits. You may not realize it because I don't have notes, but it's a very structured to keep me from. And I think Paul here does that a little bit. It doesn't quite fit in with, with uh, false teachers unless you think the false teacher somehow was involved in slavery. But he talks about slavery in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And he talks about widows. Um, he talks about slaves a little bit. You know, and, and this is an important thing in the culture. Let me just say this, and, and, and I realize that in American history, we have a, a black spot, or that's a bad gun, but we have a dark, we have a, 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 well, it's a black spot, a blotch on our history about uh, slavery, and I get that, and it's true. But listen, you need to understand is that the world in general practices some form of slavery. It is Christianity, and only Christianity, that takes a negative view towards human trafficking and slavery of any type. In fact, it's, I think it's ironic that some of the most people in America kind of reject Jesus but are the most concerned about things of slavery don't even realize that it's because of Jesus that slavery has ever been opposed. You look throughout the world and historically. I mean, what do you think communism is but slavery? It, it tells people what they can do, where they can do it, how much they can meet, and they have no freedom. Humans have no choices in true communism of their life. I remember that in communist Russia. In China today, it is that way. I mean, you look across the world. Human trafficking is prevalent, even in America, especially human sex trafficking. It is a type of slavery. People are trapped in a world, and so many people care nothing about that. You go to so many third world countries, and, and one group will defeat another in group, and if they don't kill them all, they become slaves or vassals to some degree. 
And you just look across human history and the evil and depravity of the human soul and mind and rebellion against God. We've taken other children in the image of God and we've made them subservient to us without any freedom. In the time of Paul, it is estimated that there may have been as many as 15 million slaves in the Roman Empire. The city of Rome, I've seen everything from one-third to one-half of their population with slaves. Most of the time, what I see is closer to half, something like that. Is that what you see, Tim, or is it something like that? In fact, many people feel that one of the reasons the Roman Empire ultimately collapsed was because of slavery. It was a tough thing. Even there were some poor people that would own a slave. Some people owned hundreds if you were wealthy. And, it, and, and slavery was oftentimes a result of people who couldn't afford to live selling themselves. The economy was so cruel, so crushing, so oppressive, that the only hope they had, some people were to sell themselves into slavery. They would sell their children as slaves because they couldn't afford to raise them. Their children would starve to death, so they would sell them as slaves. It was an economic way of providing for themselves and their kids. And it's very easy, and it's just very arrogant to sit back in 21st century America and say, well, Paul didn't dress slavery, and Jesus didn't either. Well, not directly, maybe, but in many ways they did. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul said one of the evils is slave trader. The person who kidnaps someone else to sell them as slavery is, is, is not going to be a part of God's kingdom. But what Paul did, he did it masterfully, and he dealt with slavery a lot more than people realize, is he put the principles in place from Christ, who laid the ultimate principles about love your neighbor as yourself. He put principles in place to deal with slavery, to end slavery, to bring about its end. Read the book of Philemon. When he sends Onesimus the slave back to the brother Philemon and says, don't be harsh on him. And by the way, don't forget, you owe me your life. And I wouldn't mind it if you sent Onesimus back to me. Now, part of the reason they didn't just categorically wipe it out is because it was ingrained in the economic structure of the culture. And to absolutely just say, you must end slavery, would have put Christianity completely in disrepute. It would have been completely rejected. It's not... It's one thing for Christians to die because of their faith in Christ. People weren't going to die as a follower of Jesus because somebody wanted to overthrow slavery. But more than that, to try to get slaves to rebel against the people that owned them would have put them in harm's way. They would have been executed, most likely crucified. Probably the vast majority of crucifixions were slaves who had rebelled against owners, other than maybe from war. I mean, that's what it was. But Paul puts some subtle things in place, and he does it here as well. And he talks oftentimes to slaves about how you treat your master. And, if, and when he wrote to Ephesians, remember, this book, Timothy, is to the church at Ephesus. When he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he talked about slave owners, how you should treat your slaves as brothers. If you treat someone as a brother in Christ, you're probably not going to own them for long. Notice what he says here. All who are under, notice what he calls it, the yoke, the burden of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He's talking about if you have a believe, this here, if you have a believing master, treat them with honor. Why? So the name of God will not be spoken against in our doctrine. In other words, it was easy for those who, excuse me, these are, the verse one, he's talking about those who are not believers. If you have a, an owner, a master who is not a believer, you need to treat them with honor. For one thing, it was for their own protection, but also because if you became a Christian and then you started rebelling against your, your owner, it would cause Christianity to come within disre- to disrepute. It would be better for you to, for yourself, and as a follower of Christ, to give them honor 
and treat them well, maybe they'll come to Christ. Maybe they will let you free. So that was one thing. Verse 2 is for those who have believers as their masters. Don't be disrespectful to them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. The temptation was, well, since you and I are brothers and sisters, you should let me go. They'd be disrespectful, but serve all the more. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. He's saying this, look. Slavery is a yoke. Don't escape it. He knows it's a yoke, it's a burden. Christians, as a rule, back then, lived under burdens. A lot of them would be persecuted. Paul himself, shortly after he wrote this, would die. Paul considered himself a servant of the Lord. Repeatedly says, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave to the Lord. Um, Christian, about Mary Sunday, she said, I am the bond slave, the bond servant of the Lord. So the attitude you needed to have, he said, in that culture was to honor your master and serve them. He would say as you would serve the Lord. Because you have an unbelieving master, it would be to your benefit to keep them from being cruel to you and may win them over because you have a believer as a master because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know we don't understand that. And I get it. But you have to put yourself back in that culture. Now, I know guys today who say, well, that's, now today this is the equivalent of the workforce. No, it's not. I mean, the principle is true. You should show respect. <laughs> Listen, you can leave any job you have. None of you are slaves to your jobs. You know, literally slaves to your jobs. You can always walk away from the job. It may not be the wisest move, but you can. They didn't have that option back then. So it was different. Now, he goes back then dealing with the false teachers. And now he takes up the issue of money. It's always good in the New Testament when we come to the issue of money. But before that, he just deals with the false teachers in general. He said, anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with these sounds words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. So first he says this, if there is someone who teaches something different and doesn't agree with what is sound, he says that which ultimately comes from Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he uses the full title of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Some believe that Paul um, and others may have taken some of the actual teachings of Christ that you would find in the Gospels and begin to use them. And, and there's probability of that is high. Paul wrote 1 Timothy after Luke would have written his Gospel, after Mark and Matthew wrote their Gospels. I don't think he's necessarily alluding to that. But there was a common core of understanding knowledge of things that Jesus taught. I mean, at some point, they had to teach what Jesus taught. They had to teach the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. So, you know, when Paul and others would go and preach about Jesus, there was certain material they would teach that they were all familiar with, that they may have been taught by the apostles. Paul would have got for Christ. And it would have included the words of Jesus. Eventually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then much later, John would write all these down. So Paul would have been very familiar. And so probably when he came to Ephesus, part of what he would have taught them not only was how he fulfilled the Old Testament, but he would have taught them his life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And Paul would be, now while Paul did more than anyone outside of Jesus to shape our belief system and doctrines and theology, and Paul oftentimes took the life and words of Jesus and gave shape and form, we might say a systematic look at them. Paul would be the first to tell you, I say this all the time, the ultimate authority is Jesus. When I preach all the time, and if, if I'm quoting Jesus and, and I'm quoting him and saying something that others disagree with, I'm like, always go with Jesus. You know, we live in a world where people say there's other ways to God, even within the church. There's got to, you know, can't be that, that Jesus is the only way. How can a loving God do that? There's got to be other ways to God. 
And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. That's Jesus. Those are his words. And so I will always go with Jesus over anyone. Paul would say the same thing. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, go with Jesus. But not just that. Go with the sound doctrine that you've been taught. Who taught him? Him. And a lot of that. We, we should always rely on the New Testament as the basis of our understanding of everything. In the Old Testament, too, I get that. But I mean, we rely on the New Testament. There are things clearly taught in the New Testament. I mean, this, this Sunday, I'm going to talk about the virgin birth. I'll deal with some issues. It's only mentioned twice. People say, well, it's only mentioned twice. It can't be that important. Why can't it be that important? Paul never mentioned it, so he, it couldn't be important. Paul only dealt with problems. Evidently, they didn't have a problem with the virgin birth back then. You know what they had a problem with? The resurrection. Paul dealt with that a lot. And so, when Scripture in the New Testament teaches something, we should go with that. When you come across things that people teach that are, it appears different, that should scare you. He says, if it doesn't conform to the way of true godliness. I can't help but think today in one of the huge, huge growing, man, it's growing fast. Heretical teachings is that of the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that, that it is God's will that you be both healthy and wealthy. That's been around a while, but it's really catching fire. It appeals to people. We have churches all throughout Las Cruces and El Paso. There's a couple of huge ones that teach that. That is the teaching of, of uh, the guy with the big hair and the smiley teeth. Joel Osteen. I knew that. I was just seeing if you did. <laughs> Most of what you see in, on the bookshelves, in not the Christian bookstores, but Barnes and Noble and places like that, is that garbage. That is huge danger. It deviates from the truth of the New Testament. You have to be aware of sound doctrine. He says, he, the one who teaches that, is conceited and understands nothing. Wow, these are hard. These are, Paul is laying harsh words. Conceited. Now, we can be conceited about a lot of things, but you shouldn't be conceited about your false teaching. He says they understand nothing. Notice what he says. He has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words. And from that comes envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. Have you ever met someone in the church that they're always just causing division, that they're harsh, they speak harshly about people, they're ugly, they gossip, they slander people? I have, I've encountered that in church life. Always is from a place of conceit. He says, they're sick and craving controversy. So Paul says some harsh things. And, and it's not just in, in the church, but anywhere in life that you see that. You should be very wary of that. The older I get, the less I want to deal with those situations. When I was younger, I used to like to wade into those battles. And I'm like, then it got to be a lot of wasted time, effort, and energy. And as I look at I don't have quite as many hours left as I once did. I don't want to waste them with fools. You really don't. 
There are too many people who are open to hear their gospel. I look on social media and see people fighting all the time. I see Christian friends, you know, they're getting all these battles with other people. I'm like, why are you wasting all your time on that? It ain't going to be good. You know, they chose their path. Let them have it. There are too many people out there who need Jesus, who want Jesus, who wants you to help them. I always go with that. He says the constant friction between people of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. He supposed that godliness is a means to gain. They are deprived of truth. They lack it. Those are strong, harsh words. And you know the cool thing about that is I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining to you what it means because we all know what all that means. Those aren't tricky Greek words. <laughs> Whether you have the New American Standard NIV or whatever English version you have, you get the picture. That is so simple. It is harsh and tough, but it's so simple. There's something wrong, and they think all of this is a means to gain. He's fixing to go in to what the false teachers are really all about in many ways. Now, gain doesn't just have to be economic. It can be power and influence. I, I, every church, including this one that I've ever come to, including this one, there was a group who wanted to have a certain type of control. And so they would do certain things that, that I would say were borderline of whether they're ethical or Christian or of faith to try to have control and influence. I've seen it my entire ministry. It's never changed. In all of them, what they were trying to gain wasn't necessarily money, but it was the ability to control and influence and be in charge of whatever, power, whatever. For preachers, a lot of times it is money. But whatever the motive is, it isn't for that God can be honored and the church and people can come to Christ. It's never that. Notice what he says then. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when you are content. Now, he's going to deal in the area of finances because this was the issue with the false teachers. He's really getting to this. Now, some have taken that to mean that we ought to be content with being poor, and that's not what Paul teaches. It, it, that Some people slander you know, Paul and Christianity, that he's saying it's okay to be poor. He's not saying that. Paul constantly talks about being content. Notice what he says. We have brought nothing into the world. We're not going to take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, those we shall be content. Now, covering can mean clothing. It can mean clothing and shelter. That's a word. However, some take it as just food and clothing, some food, clothing, and shelter. But here's the thing. You have to understand to the culture in which he's writing. He's not writing to 21st century America, okay? He's writing to people sometimes who had nothing. I mean, nothing. Who lived day to day. He said, the ability to be fed clothed, maybe even sheltered. Content doesn't mean you don't want better, but it means that you aren't coveting what someone else has, or it doesn't become the single focus. You should always take advantage of better in yourself if you can. I tell people, young people all the time, if you can go, if you can continue your education, if you can get better at your job, if you can do more, you should always do more. It's part of our work ethic as a Christian, to strive for excellence, to honor God in all we do. But we also need to be content or satisfied with what we have. doesn't mean we can't strive for better, but we don't want to be greedy. We don't want to be coveting. Because coveting usually means you want something someone else has. And so he says you have to be careful of these things. And there's a certain contentment. We're not taking anything with us when we leave this world. So our focus isn't on earthly things. And Jesus said that. 
He said, but those who, get this, want to get rich, that is their goal, fall into temptation and a trap, and meaning foolish and harmful desires which purge people into ruin and destruction. The person who has as their goal to get rich. He doesn't say it's wrong to be rich. There are a lot of Christians who have done very well. I am very thankful that in American Christianity, we have been blessed with the affluence and many generous people that have allowed American Christians to send hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars and tens of thousands of people overseas to spread the gospel throughout the world. Because of the Christian movement in America, in our affluence, we've had the ability to do that. It's expensive to send missionaries all over the world. We're doing the Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering. If you're not Southern Baptist, that's every year the offering that Southern Baptists take uh, to help uh, give extra money to all of our international missions, missionaries around the world. Show, you know, in, in the end, if you don't know, they were missionaries in Argentina when we brought them here. You know, it, it costs a lot of money. Bringing them over here was a fortune, by the way. I mean, the IMB paid for it, fortunately, except for their dogs. They had to pay for their dogs to come over. Didn't even, Joe didn't even like the dogs. Am I correct? That's his dad's right there. He didn't like them. But guess who liked them? The wife and kids liked them. It was cheaper, but it was cheaper to bring the dogs and not Joe. I thought about that, too. <laughs> but all the, you know, the church plants... We, we, we work with a lot of church planters. It's, it takes a lot of resources. Some of them are trying, they can't even build prop. They can't build buildings because it's millions of dollars to buy property. Much less build. Two of our church planters, one, one in Phoenix, um, uh, Alex, you know, it looks like he's got a line on some property. First Baptist Midland's got a lot of money, that oil money. I think they're going to help him. I said, take all the money you can get out of First Midland. They got they got millions of dollars sitting around doing nothing. Take it. You know, they need it. Keith up in uh, uh, Denver, I mean, two, two, a million dollars to get, I think, four acres. So generosity, yeah, it's okay. But when your goal is to get rich, it's going to ruin your life. And we've seen it so often, people getting trapped. How many people are in jail because they wanted to get rich and took shortcuts? It happens all the time. He says this in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now notice he doesn't say the love of money is, uh, he didn't say money is the root of evil. All He says loving money is not the root, but a root, not of all evil, but of all types of evil. Money is not evil. It's neutral. It's what you do with it that matters. But you can love it. And it's not just rich people who love money. Poor people love money too. It's not the only root, but it is one of the roots, one of the sources of not every evil, but of lots of different types of evil. Paul says this. A lot of believers have been ruined in their life by loving money. I've had many people come and talk to me over the years of life about their marriage failing, their spiritual life failing, alcoholism, sometimes facing jail because of embezzlement because of their pursuit of money, their love of money before all else. He says it can cause you to kind of wander away 
and you're pierced with grief and frustration. And the false teachers, at least some of them, were loving money. Paul's telling Timothy, and I think this, and I think to some degree, this is Paul telling Timothy, Timothy, don't fall into their trap. Don't become like them. Paul gave up everything for Jesus. Paul would have, could have been a very wealthy man. He may have been a very wealthy man. He was on a track of life as a Pharisee of Pharisees to make a tremendous amount of wealth and walked away from that. And so much of what you see in the early church of people suffering began economically with what they got taken from them and lost. And they would learn in that day and age, listen, I'm content if I got a place to live, some clothes and food. And Paul would say, I know you've lost a lot, but don't try to make it up. Because you could abandon the faith. You could make serious mistakes and, and, and go the wrong direction. Think of how much he writes in Corinth about the life they're living and, and, the, and, and the danger of going to the idolatry and all the parties because you're associating with pagans in order to keep ahead and stay ahead in business. You've got to, you've got to compromise your faith for idolatry. He says you can't go down that road. He's constantly warning about similar things to keep us from damaging our faith. I think in America, it's very easy to not pursue money, but to take what you have and cling to it and to hold on to it. That's really a lot of our danger. I don't think many of us in here are in any danger of starving, running out of clothes, or not having a, a roof over our head. But what we're in danger of is clinging to those things so much that that becomes our goal to keep what we have. And sometimes of not having a generous spirit to help not only other people, but to give to causes, the church being one of them, but just different things to help support and love and to do those things. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I found out, you know, my, my wife worked not because she had to. She worked, A, for insurance purposes, so she had great insurance. B, to maintain a certain lifestyle. But then she got to do whatever she wanted with most of her money and in her passing and looking at her. My wife gave a lot of money away, a lot, to all sorts of causes. Some involved dogs, a lot of involved people. And I realized her generous spirit in that process. Because she, now she ordered a lot of stuff from Amazon, I'll give you that. But she could have ordered and kept a whole lot of that money for her without me ever knowing what she was doing with it. But she gave a lot of that away. And I learned to appreciate even more the generous spirit that she had. Far more generous than I am, evidently, because I've had to cut most of those places off. <laughs> but here's the thing as we go. Don't let the clinging to the stuff control your life. Dr. Thomas Surrey from Southwestern Seminary, he was my major professor over my doctorate. He was the professor who got me through my doctoral program. He would say, that which you can hold in your hand would one day perish.
Just don't forget to don't cling to it too much. Don't be a false teacher in the process. So we're through. I got you through. Still 7 o'clock. 37 seconds, but we're good.